Hey guys. So, about a year ago, our daughter decided that she wanted to be a vegetarian. We're completely fine with that. Doesn't bother us a bit. Is that something she wants to do? A decision she made for herself? We are more than happy to support her in that journey. Problem is, finding good food for her to eat can really be a pain. You have the same types of tofu, same types of vegetables. She can only have salad so many times before she's sick and tired of it. Well, that brings me to Purple Carrot. A Purple Carrot is the plant-based subscription meal kit that makes it easy to cook irresistible meals to fuel your body. Each week, choose from an expansive and delicious menu of dinners, lunches, breakfasts, and snacks. Every box is an opportunity to learn and experience something new with easy recipes and fresh pre-portioned ingredients. No shopping, no food waste, just globally inspired, restaurant quality, plant-based meals that my daughter will love probably more than the brick of tofu I give her when we can't think of anything else to feed. Get $30 off your first box by going to purplecarrot.com and entering PODGO30 at checkout today. That's PODGO30 for $30 off your first Purple Carrot box. Purple Carrot, the easiest way to eat more plants. perfectly clean. You just need to be close I was close enough. There you go. Now I can hear you. How's everybody doing? A little hiatus. A little tickle. I, I would you call it our season two. I wouldn't call this our season two. I just we, we just we took a vacation. We took a Christmas break. Like like the Walking Dead. They take a hiatus over the winter and then come back after the Super Bowl. Yeah, but we didn't wait that long. No, we're not we're not gonna wait that long. But yeah. In any event, we are back. Ooh. How's that? That good? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, I can hear you too. I can also hear a lot of static. I will clean that up. Don't worry about it. Okay. So we're recording inside because it's way too cold out in our fucking garage and now our cat and dog are getting into it. Hey! Go lay down. Okay. You good? Yeah. You sure? Yeah. What's wrong? I'm touching my flu shot. Don't touch your flu. God, you are such it's a baby. It's warm. Yeah, it's a flu shot. They they. No, I'm freezing. Don't... I'm touching it because I'm freezing okay. and it's warm. Oh, oh you're ridiculous. <laughs> you're a ridiculous person. <laughs> I'm cold. You are ridiculous. I wasn't doing it because I'm being a baby. It's putting off heat and I'm cold. It's not going to put off enough heat to warm you up. It's warming my hand oh, up. Jesus Christ. Okay. I'm Kevin. I'm Stephanie. Welcome to Open a Fucking Book. Um, so let's just get into it. The subject of our first series, 2021. Thank God 2020 is over. Even though 2021's been getting off to just a rocket of a start. Yeah. So maybe listening to uh, stories about authors and shit is going to be. Your uh, escape from realism. Maybe. A little cathar- 
cathargic? Catharsis. Catharsism. Or it's going to be cathartic. 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 Catharsis. We run a book podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh... The subject of our first series of 2021 was a Southern American novelist. Uh, she wrote short stories, uh, essays, book reviews. She was an editor, a cartoonist, a self-publisher that used her Irish Catholic faith as a backdrop to the majority of her stories. Uh, being what some would call the gold standard of introverts, she never had a problem going against society's norms just to be comfortable and left alone. Sounds familiar. Yeah. With her love of writing, drawing, and making little clothes for her many pet birds, <laughs> she took the little literary world by storm, being called by many a genius and the next important writer of her generation, up until a horrible and mysterious disease which we have just recently started to fully understand, cut her down early in life. What you, the listener, will have to decide for yourself is, was she racist? She was a Southerner, a white Southerner, so yes, she was racist. We we will give you our thoughts after the series is through. I don't need to wait. So sit back. Keep running on that treadmill or keep folding the laundry, whatever the fuck you're doing right now. Because this is the author of The Violent Barrett Away, A Good Man is Hard to Find, You Can't Be Any Poorer Than Dead, and probably her most famous book, Wise Blood. This is the life of Flannery O'Connor. Yay, an Irish woman. An Irish woman. Well, a southern Irish woman, so... Still Irish, she's still Irish. Now, for our reference for this series is Flannery, A Life of Flannery O'Connor by Brad Gooch. It's um, it's it's a decent book, you know, for not... So, spoiler, she doesn't live a super long life. And he still manages to write a, a fairly good-sized book. That's good. All right, well, let's get into it. So, Mary Flannery O'Connor, yes, another Mary. A lot of Marys. Had a, lot of, a lot of Marys, a lot of Fannies. Yeah, I, when they when they write biographies about our generation of authors, oh, there's going to be so many different fucking names. Just wait till the next generation of authors. <laughs> God damn it. Anyway, Mary Flannery O'Connor was born March 25th, 1925 at the St. Joseph's Hospital in Savannah, Georgia, the only child to Edward and Regina O'Connor. As we do always, let's get to know the family. Now, Edward Francis O'Connor Jr. was born in 1896, the oldest of eight children. Pretty common for a Irish Catholic family, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he went to uh, the Benedictine College in Savannah and Mount St. Mary's College in Emmitsburg, Maryland. So he did a good amount of traveling for his school, which was kind of odd for back in the... Uh, Early, early 1900s. And for those of you who don't know about Catholicism, I do believe they they don't believe in using birth control. They're against contraception of any kind, yes. Yeah, and that's why they have so many children. Yeah. No. Uh, he tried to get into Annapolis, but was shitty at math and wasn't able to. Mary is also bad at math. <laughs> she's, she's good at other things, though. 
So, after college, he served in the Georgian National Guard from May 1916 to August 1917, and then was deployed overseas from April 1918 to May 1919 in the 325th Infantry and the 82nd Division of the American Expeditionary Force in World War I. Uh, he was awarded the rank of Second Lieutenant, World War I Victory Medal, and a Victory Button. I like buttons. <laughs> I don't think it's the same kind of button. I know. It's a, mu- it's a much more important and hard to get button than the ones we have, like, on my lunchbox. Or my collection. Your collection. Uh, he was the grandson of an Irish immigrant and the son of a wholesale distributor of candies and tobacco. Make sure you don't mix those up when you sell them. Or you might get tobacco. Like... <laughs> well, only... that was vegetables and tobacco. T- t- tomatoes and tobacco, yeah. Uh, and was the one-time president of the People's Bank and the director of the Hibernia, the Hibernia Bank. Now, Ed was working as a salesman for his father's company and trying to break into real estate and rebounding from an unhappy love affair when, at his younger sister Anne's wedding, he met the pretty heart-shaped-faced older sister of his new brother-in-law, Regina Klein. Yes, he marries the older sister of his younger sister's husband. Keeping it in the family. Kinda. I mean, there's, I guess there's, there's no, no blood law. relation. There's no yeah. blood relation, so it's fine. It's just, it's an odd thing. Yeah, because usually you don't, it's like. But it's one Irish Catholic family marrying into another Irish Catholic family, so they, they try to keep everybody together, I guess. Uh, Catholic parents don't usually like their children to marry outside of the faith. Like yeah. Jewish parents. They don't well, like their parents. No, it'd be, their kids it, it's kind of weird, faith. though, because it's like when um, two young adults are dating and then their parents meet and then their parents start dating and then they get married. Yeah, now you're, all of a sudden you're, you're fucking your stepsister. Yeah, and you're. Do you quit? Do you keep going? I mean, you two knew each other longer. Yeah, that's. It's. Again, not technically incest. Yeah, but. The porn Why? industry's made a lot of money out of it. <laughs> I, how would you know? I had a life before I met you. But I mean, it's it's that kind of weirdness because you're you're technically a, related. You're kind of cousins now. It's an awkward position to be in. Yeah. Yeah. But <clears throat> that's what happened. Now, Regina was born same year as Ed in Milledgeville, Georgia. Her family line was some of the most prevalent of the Irish immigrants in Georgia. The Kleins and the Flannerys. They are the who's who of Irish immigrants in Georgia. Okay. Well, in this part of Georgia, anyway. And the the, uh, the O'Connors are not. They are two completely different sets of families, the Kleins. And, well, and the Flannerys, too, but they're, you know. Um, but it's mostly the Kleins and the O'Connors. Completely different types of families. Um... O'Connors are kind of looked down upon because they're more closer to middle class. The Kleins are a little upper class and snobbish. So that's kind of what we're going to be seeing here a little bit. Uh, the Great Divide. Yes. Now, her father, Peter, had enough money to buy a post-Civil War antebellum mansion in Milledgeville and was unanimously, unanimously elected its mayor in 1889. 
She grew up being known as a sassy girl with one story saying that one day, while walking down the road with some friends, a laborer called out to her, quote, Little girl, what you got in that bag? And quip back, quote, I've got the biscuits, have you got the honey? All day yesterday, you saw that line, and all day yesterday, you're walking around doing what? I've got biscuits. <laughs> all fucking day. I'm like, first off, don't look at my computer when I'm typing. You're not supposed to know what I'm going to talk about this part of the show. Secondly, that has that is nowhere near what was going on. All day, with a, with a so-so English accent, she's walking around going, I've got biscuits! <laughs> biscuits so i had that to deal with aren't you all lucky to not be me she went to mountain to mount (laughs) she went to mount saint joseph school for girls in augusta a covenant uh a convent school supported with funding from a well-to-do widow cousin katie semis now who will play a fairly large role in their lives going forward. How much of her I actually cover uh, is debatable, but just just keep in mind that like where they live, where they go, a lot of what they do has a lot to do with uh, old cousin Katie tossing them some money. So, okay. Okay. Now, she graduated from high school in 1960. Yeah, in I 19... thought I was playing footsie with you. She graduated from high school in 1916, and six years later, on July 18th, 1922, being pestered for being in her mid-twenties and single, how dare she, met Edward. And only three months later, an engagement announced was, announcement was placed in the Savannah Morning News, and a week later, on October 14th, 1922, the two were married at Sacred Heart Church in, Mid- in Milledgeville. So the Savannah area is where in Georgia they were from. Uh, the so all around the, the they're they're gonna be from. Ed was from the Savannah area. Okay. Regina was her family was kind of the kings and queens of the Milledgeville area. I don't know where that is. Uh, it's in Georgia. I know. <laughs> but they kind of run that. Milledgeville actually was like a state was like the fourth state capital or some shit like that until they moved it. So, I mean, it was a big to do. We'll get into Milledgeville here in a minute. Um, a little bit about it. Not exactly where it's located, but a little bit about Well, because I it. know the Savannah area and I know about Atlanta. But... Uh, we'll talk about Atlanta and, and its surrounding area here in a few minutes, too. Yeah. Because I, I lived in Savannah for a short time. Milledgeville is a fairly small town. I think it said that it had like yeah, 6,000 people or something in it. So about the size of the town that we live in, which is a, a, a you know, a very small city, uh, a town, a village, whatever you want to call it. So it's not, it's nothing huge, but that's where they're, they're big fish in a little pond. Yeah. And that's probably why they stayed there because they were big fish there. You move somewhere bigger and you're not, you're a big fish. Yeah. All right. Now in March of the next year, Katie, like I said she would, made them a deal that they could move into a house she owned while Edward worked on his real estate business. And it was one of these things where it's like, oh, you you pay me this much and you keep paying me over time and the, the house will be yours and you can live there. And they cut, cut him a, a really, she cut him Kinda a really like good like a contract deal. for deed. Something like that. Now, a lot can be told by pictures of the family from when Mary was a toddler. 
Pictures of her and her mother were very deliberately staged, both staring intently into the camera. Pictures with her father, on the other hand, were more looking towards each other and smiling to one another. Um, I get a lot of uh, just just two of them smile, like her putting her hand on his face or something. Just 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 kind of like she was a daddy's girl. Just a just a father and a daughter just admiring one another because yes, she was a daddy's girl. She adored her father, and her father adored her. I'm a daddy's girl. Yes, you are. Now, they would write notes to each other. Him calling himself the King of Siam, and her calling herself Lord Flannery O'Connor. And she would leave poems and drawings for him under his breakfast plate or tucked into napkins so he could stumble upon them by surprise. Uh, He would grab them up, put them in his wallet, and show his co-workers and friends later. Uh, Regina was more the disciplinarian of the two and liked her daughter to act and behave in a certain way. It was the way like it was the way the relationship would more or less always be. Uh, Regina loves her daughter. I don't want anybody to think that Regina is just this harpy that just hates her. Regina loves her daughter. She was just brought up a, a little differently, and ex- always cross your legs. Es- don't wear expects jeans. a little bit more from from Skirts Mary. Below the knee. Now, or, I, uh, yeah, below the knee. a family friend put it, quote, Ed would not have put the kind of pressure on her that Regina did. He liked her just as she was. Tomboyish. Uh, no. Just herself. Tomboyish. No, not tomboyish. Tomboyish is uh, assuming that she likes to go out and play in the mud and, and uh, do all the things the boys are doing. That's, that's not what she was doing. She was just herself. No, I'm, I'm not saying Tom like a full-on tomboy i'm saying tomboyish like she didn't like to be all girly girly well she okay so she had no problem with putting on the dresses and she had no problem with you know fixing her hair it was just she wanted regina wanted her to be something that she wasn't it wasn't necessarily be like a girly girl she just wanted her to be the way regina wanted her to be and ed wanted her to just be herself just be herself you can be whatever you want. As long as you're happy, I'm happy. I like you the way you are. Just be yourself. And that's how it was. Because Mary is a very different sort of child. She is not... Uh, you can't really put Mary into one category. Because even saying she's the gold... Like, like in the beginning when I said she's the gold standard of introverts, that's true to a point. Because introverts are usually extremely shy, which she is, uh, extremely... Um, to themselves and never letting themselves kind of express themselves, which she is until she hits that point where she says, fuck it. And she just says whatever the fuck she wants to say because she has no filter and she has no um, tact. Kind of like me. Kind of, but that's an introverted extrovert. Yeah. But I wouldn't even say she's that. She just, she just tells people it's like, I'm going to come out of my shell for a second to tell you to all fucking leave me alone. And then I'm going to go back into my shell. Yep, that's an extra introverted extrovert. I don't know if I'd go that far, but yeah, Regina Regina always kind of wanted her to be one thing. Ed just wanted her to be herself. That's the relationship they all kind of had. Now Mary started writing and drawing, which was her technically first passion. That's always what she wanted to do, even as she grows up. That's where she was pointing her ambitions towards was being an illustrator. Now, at a very early age, she started doing all of this. Now, when the O'Connors went out for the evening, 
Their little daughter, in the care of a babysitter, would write letters or make drawings to surprise them. One of these was done on a piece of white cardboard, bent in half, with red silk cord threaded through the holes at the fold. On one side, she traced her mother's initials, R-C-O-C, and pasted a cutout drawing, childishly hand-colored, of a pretty little girl on a bridge watching ducks swimming in the stream below. And on the flip side, for her father, E-F-O-C, she glued an illustration of an old clockmaker peering intently through wired rim glasses tickering at his work table. Another passion that would follow her through life was a love of birds. Farm birds, exotic birds, waterfowl, really any kind of bird. She was fucking all about. There was something about them. I don't know if it's a subconscious thing where they could fly away at any moment, even though chickens were her favorites and well, well peacocks would become her favorites at you know later on but she loved chickens as a kid and uh they can't really fly all that far so maybe not maybe she just wanted to leave a little bit but she loved fucking birds not fucking birds she fucking loved birds <laughs> uh, she had a coop of chickens when she was little that she would spend her time playing with and teaching tricks when she was five a cameraman from the Paith newsreel company from new york city came to their home in savannah they had moved uh, before Mary was born to film her, or rather to film her buff Cochin Bantanum chicken. She had apparently taught how to walk backwards. Can't chickens already walk backwards? Uh, I have no idea, but apparently this was the only one that anybody else knew about. But they were probably brought there by cousin Katie, who had the who had purchased the house next to theirs and wanted the news team there. Mary said that it was because the trick made the local paper. Quote, Her fame had spread through the press, and by the time she had reached the attention of Paith News, I suppose there was nowhere left for her to go, forward or backward. Shortly after that, she died, as now seems fitting. No more. Anymore. Oh no! I'm gonna do it through the no, whole thing. No, no, I can't. I can't. You're gonna I can't, deal with it. I can't. I can't deal, deal with it. it. I can't. So, the the chicken. So the guy gets there, and the chicken uh, doesn't want to do anything. He's literally sitting there with his camera ready for hours, like all afternoon, just waiting for this chicken to do something. She's just sitting there waiting, and then all of a sudden, the uh, the chicken gets up. And she gets, she jumps up with it. It walks backwards for a few feet and then just fucking sits down. So the cameraman gets that on camera real quick. And then he grabs his shit and he fucking bolts. <laughs> even They even offered him a bowl of ice cream for his troubles. And he turns it down. He's like, no, I'm fucking leaving. I'm done, you fucking people. And he's out. Uh, now, th- see, this was this was going to be on a newsreel that was going to be played in a movie theater before a film. Now, for all of you out there who don't know exactly what I'm talking about, way back in the, you know, 20s and 30s and, and 40s, uh, watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's a good, they, they have it up in there. They would play uh, newsreels before a film because, you know, didn't really have TVs back then. And unless you were getting a newspaper or a magazine, that's the only way you got your news. And they put these newsreels, shit like, I mean, shit usually was shit about the war, about the war effort going on. Um, but like little funny shit like this, little girl walking backwards with her chicken. 
and stuff they they put on there. But a lot of people, you went to the movies early, or the uh, the talkies early, so you could see what news was going was going on. Uh, and this particular newsreel opened with a card that said, "Odd Fowl walks backwards to go forward, so she could look back to see where she went." That's a interesting way to put it. In uh, I don't know, I guess say ironic. It's unfortunate. Mary never actually got to see it on screen because the film reel never came to Savannah. Aww. Yeah, and you know, you couldn't just pull it up on YouTube. Yeah. There's a couple more years before YouTube came out. Maybe Twitch. I don't know. Also, in 1931, Mary started in St. Vincent Grammar School, an Irish Catholic school ran by the same Sisters of Mercy that ran the St. Vincent Hospital she was born in, both funded largely by Cousin Katie. Mary remembers herself from this time as a, quote, pigeon-toed only child with a receding chin and a leave-me-alone-or-I'll-bite-you look. But most of the people she went to school with remembered her as a quiet, painfully shy, self-reliant but remote introvert on the sidelines. And she wore some corrective shoes that gave her a very distinct walk. That's where the pigeon toe thing came from. She didn't go out to play much, but when she did, it was to go to the movie theater with a friend or to roller skate around the block. But most of the time, you would find her in her bedroom with a pencil and paper. Quote, I suppose my father towed around some of my early productions. I drew mostly chickens, beginning at the tail. Same chicken over and over, beginning at the tail. So she loved birds, and she loved to draw birds. And one of her earliest surviving illustrations featured a small cutout picture, small enough to fit in her father's wallet, featuring a grounded bald turkey and a little girl flying over it. She had the turkey and then the girl, little girl switch places, even though turkeys don't fly very far. She had an imagination. Oh, yes, she has an imagination. Her grades were good, except for math and spelling. Her math was bad, but the spelling was her worst subject. Once bringing home a report card and having to explain to her mother, quote, Mother, I made an 82 in geography, but I would have made 100 if it hadn't been for spelling. I made an 85 in English, but it would have been 100. Hadn't have been for spelling. And I made a 65 in spelling, but would have made a 100 if it hadn't been for spelling. Stop. I read it the way it's printed out. I don't know what to tell you. She excelled at reading, but her best subject was catechism, Roman Catholic theology. Now they read out of the Baltimore Catechism book, which read in a Q&A style. Question, who made us? Answer, God made us question why did god make god make us and so on and so forth. i'm not going to get into it uh this exchange would come back in her story the enduring chill several years later when a large red-faced country priest blind in one eye and introducing himself as father finn from purgatory what that's a horrible irish accent i don't know what to tell you questions another character who made you in the an- and is answered different people believe different things about that and who is God? And gets back a God is an idea created by man. And that keeps on going for a while before the father finally calls him a uh, an idiot, pretty much. <laughs> now, Mary wasn't exactly what you would call a teacher's pet. In fact, she didn't get along well with the nuns at all. Can't stand the fucking nuns. 
Uh, each Sunday, the sisters would hold a mandatory children's mass, but Mary's parents encouraged her to attend the adult mass. Every Monday, the children that didn't go to the church's mass were lined up in front of the blackboard and questioned about why they weren't there. As classmate Leonora Jones tells us, quote, She'd stand there and tell sisters, The Catholic Church does not dictate to my family what time I go to Mass. I was five and she was six, and I knew she was different. In the third and fifth grades, she was taught by Sister Mary Consolata, who would always give Mary a hard time about her writings, which were always about ducks and chickens. Mary Consolata even tells her, I don't want to read any more stories about ducks or chickens. Uh, Sister Consolata said that there was nothing remarkable about her as a student, and she was too forward with adults. Uh, The good sister, along with a few other sisters at the school, were the inspiration for Sister Perpetua in her books Wise Blood and a story, A Temple of the Holy Ghost. That story also has a little girl that has a grin that that glared like tin. This was Mary herself. Because even though they were expensive and rare for young kids, Mary was one of the only kids in town with braces. So let's make an awkward kid even more awkward. Um, There's also a story. She hated the nuns so much that it drove her to hate the guardian angel. They told her that uh, was watching over her. So she would go to her, her home and go up to her room by the attic every day after school with just this evil look on her face. And she'd scrunch her fists up real hard and she'd just start spinning around in circles trying to, she knew she couldn't hurt the guardian angels, but she tried to, I believe the quote is, knock or knock the feathers off of it or dirty its <laughs> feathers because she she imagined it had feathers. Because she hated the nuns so much. It would have been funnier if she tried to do that in front of the nuns. <laughs> she did it in her room. Now, even though she was obviously socially awkward, she did have some Regina-approved friends. Lillian and Ann Dowling, cousin Margaret Percy, or is it just Purse? I don't know. And Newell, Newell Turner, who would come over and listen to Let's Pretend on the radio every Saturday. Mary used this this program that did live renditions of stories like Cinderella and Rumpelstiltskin as inspiration for a club she created called the Merryweather Girls. Now, Mary, of course, made herself president. Of course. Because it was, well, it was her club she came up with. Uh, They hung out in a playhouse built into the corner of her backyard, surrounded by Rhode Island Red, Plymouth Rock, and White Leghorn Chickens. They would sit around a little table, and the other girls would listen while President O'Connor read them her latest stories. Uh, Pages and pages of stories on line notebook paper with her own illustrations about a family of ducks traveling the world. I bet they were tired of hearing about ducks and chickens, too. I imagine they probably were. By the end of it, I think everybody's sick and tired of hearing about ducks and chickens. But she doesn't stay on the duck and chicken kick. For forever. She'll she'll move past it here in a little bit. Good. Now, sometimes Mary would even take friends to the attic and have them sit with her in a big dry porcelain tub with claw feet and not hooked up to any plumbing, obviously. And she would have her friend read her story back to her. And it used to annoy some of her friends sometimes because they'd be in the middle of a paragraph and she would say, quote, go back and read that last part again. (laughs) 
stroke my ego a little bit. Well, more. no, she was doing it because she wanted them to have the right inflection when she when they said it. She she wanted them to read it correctly because she wrote it a certain way and that's how it should be read. Okay. She was a, she was her her author was coming out already at a very early age. Yes. Like this is how it's supposed to be read. Read it right. Can you imagine if she was here during the time of audiobooks and her just sitting there watching somebody else read her stuff? It would take forever to get through one of her four-hour books. Probably. About a year after the club started, she went from fantasy to a form of satire. Moving from a family of ducks to her own family. She had a certain talent for mocking adults, so she wrote a little book called my relatives with an I instead of an A. Remember, she's a horrible speller. Yes. Uh, Ed actually helped her type and bind up the book, which featured illustrations so close to life that many of the subjects, her family, refused to accept that they recognized themselves. <laughs> because if you remember in our Hunter S. Thompson, uh, Ralph uh, Stedman, who, uh, who liked to draw people... You could tell it was yourself, but it wasn't very flattering. Mm-hmm. Same kind of vein. Maybe not so out there, but same kind of vein. Quote, I wrote a book at age 10 called My Relatives. Seven copies were printed and distributed by me. It was in a naturalistic vein. It was not well received. <laughs> now, by the middle of the Depression, because you remember, it was the 30s. The Great Depression going on. Ed had already been through several real estate businesses and a construction company. All failed. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard to buy a house when nobody has any money. And the money you do have isn't worth anything. People going up to the, going to buy bread with wheelbarrows full of cash and still not having enough because money was useless. Yeah. And he was now back to working as a salesman for his father's wholesale grocery business. But in 1935, he decided to aim his talents as an orator and his natural charm to find some political success in the American Legion. He was elected the commander of the Chatham section of the Legion, and then the next year he was voted unanimously to be the commander of all of Georgia. He was very charming. Could very could 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 charm people very well. Get uh, not not like a not like a tyrant. Right. But just a just a, a nice, charming guy. Charismatic. Who, yeah. Now, Ed was actually a great write, writer himself, which can be heard in some of his speeches he gave, gave over his time in the Legion. And Mary contributes much of her talent and panache for writing, and the reason she wrote largely to Ed. Now, at the end of 1937, Ed wrote to Erwin Spilvey, an attorney friend of the family, to lobby a job with FDR for the newly established Federal Housing Administration. And remember that there was a time before the Federal Housing Administration. Uh, Also, in 1937, a small white patch of skin started to appear on his forehead. They thought at first it might have been some type of rheumatoid arthritis that was starting to affect his health. Seems like rheumatoid arthritis is kind of the diagnosis that a lot of doctors gave out when they didn't know what the fuck was going on with people. It's like, this hurts a lot. It's arthritis. I got a headache. It's arthritis. I can't stop shitting. Probably arthritis. Kind of like how ADHD and fibromyalgia are overdiagnosed today. Probably. 
Now, some thought that the midday naps were just laziness and the joint pains were just aging or arthritis. But it turned out that it was really a thing that at the time they called Red Wolf because of the horrible rash it could give you. But we all know of now, as partially thanks to House MD, lupus. It's never lupus. This time it's lupus. <laughs> and for one episode, it was lupus. Yes, one episode. And I told you that when that episode came on, it was lupus. And you told me it was never lupus. And it was lupus. And I proved you wrong. Though I didn't know that was the episode it was I told lupus. you it was the episode with lupus. I remembered it. Because I remember he finally got a case of lupus. And it was a guy. Which actually, men getting lupus is fairly rare. It's almost always women. But men can get it. It's just I got it's, tested for lupus a couple times yeah, because it's just of my not, disorder. Yeah, it's just not as common for a man to have it. Oh, I also want to say I know that ADHD is real and I know that uh, fibro fibro is, is real. real. Yeah, I just I also know from studying childhood education and the disorder that I have and knowing people who have abused said fibro that both are highly overdiagnosed and some people don't actually have them they have other disorders or they don't have it at all but i know both are real i just wanted to say that hot take mary wouldn't know for quite some time that her father had the disease it was kind of uh something they kept from her for a little bit now, at the age of 12 mary began writing in a journal mostly a collection of various rants uh, a writing on writing on the cover, she put, I know some folks don't mind their own business. And that's B-I-S-N-I-S. Just to make sure nobody would read her stuff. Uh, inside, she complained about adults correcting her spelling. What she felt was the over-exaggeration of usefulness for math, her dance classes, being made to clean her room, and general pretty bullshit. That's I can't stand. I, can't, I, <laughs> I didn't even read it with an accent that time. I just read it the way it's. I know. I, I, I know I, some folks don't mind their own business. I have, I have friends and family from the south, and I'm going to apologize now because I'm about to say something. The reason I hated the south so much and still do is because of the way you people talk. I'd say you people. You don't have to be mean about it. I'm not being mean. It's, it's an accent you don't particularly like. It's it's not just the accent; it's the way they talk. Like they have, they're it makes they don't speak properly, and they don't they don't pronounce words properly, and they don't. It it just sounds ignorant. And a lot I'm, of and a lot of them would say that about Midwesterners and and people on the East Coast, and people on the West Coast, and people who live up north, and people from other countries. It's all dialect. It's, it's the it's not a dialect you agree with it, but it's their dialect. It's the the South is worse than any other area. To you. That's because I love the English language and I... English language is not, kind of a shitty language. Well, no, but I mean, like, I, I love grammar. I love linguistics. I love pronunciations. I love intonation. Pronunciation. I, if you're going to pronounce it right. I'm going to pronounce <laughs> it right in your dick with my foot. <laughs> You said pronunciations. It is pronunciations. No, you said pronunciations. It's pronunciation. Same 
fucking no, don't. No, no, don't, I'm gonna don't, fucking don't go on a rant. You. Don't go on a rant about grammar and then say something wrong and then get pissed off when I correct you. But I just, I even, even my friends from the Midwest and other parts of the country, when they don't spell words correctly, when they, they're there and there. That all, your, your. Yeah, all of that. Yes, know. you have a T-shirt that I bought you. This is grammar police on it. Yeah. If, yeah. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> it drives me nuts. But the way that Southerners speak, I know you don't. You don't like it. That's fine. You don't have to. But it's just—it's it, a whole group of people that talk a certain way, and you just get to live with it. And there's people around us that speak with a Southern accent. Yeah, but I think they do it just because they—they they want to. So you live in the middle of Illinois. You're not. You're south. Not southern. No. Yeah. And you didn't come. Most of them don't come. I know them, and they haven't come from the south. Yeah. So, anyway, now in also in 1937, Regina enrolled Mary in a vacation reading club offered by the Carnegie Library of Atlanta, which handed out certificates to children for reading and reporting on ten books over the summer. So you know, kind, our library used to do stuff like that. Kind of like the old uh, book it, book it, the Pizza Hut stuff. You get, you get. Free pizza, and you might even get a free trip to Six Flags. Yeah, that was through school. That was the Six Flags one. Our library used to to do stuff like that. I forgot what you won. I think maybe it, it was another type of pizza, but from a local. This one, the library here in town did it in the basement. I went to one meeting because I didn't know about it until then. I went to one meeting, and then they ended up going to, like, they took a big trip to Cahokia Mounds over by St. Louis, and I didn't get to go. I don't remember why I didn't get to go, but I didn't get They brought me back a whole bunch of stuff from there. It was really nice. But yeah, there a lot of your libraries, maybe not right now, but when there's not a pandemic going on, a lot of them have um, reading clubs for kids and stuff like that. So look into something like that if you have a library near you, and it might be something your kids enjoy. Not library. Library. You said library. When you said library, that second. Like- Librarian the second time. See, then, I don't. Then, even, it, was, then I, it was a fuck up. I didn't. I didn't mean to. I know. I don't I know. say library on purpose. Uh. Anyway, she enjoyed books like Call the Wild, and Lucia May Alcott's or Luisa May Alcott's Little Women and Louisa. Little Luisa. Luisa May Alcott. Okay, Luisa May Alcott. See, see what I'm talking about. <laughs> Little Women and Little Men, which she called, quote, first-rate splendid. Even after she received her certificate, she continued to review books on her own. On the flyleaf of Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, she wrote, what do you think she wrote? For Alice in Wonderland, for a for a little Majestic. girl, 12-year-old little girl, for Alice in Wonderland. Majestic. Quote, awful, I would not read this book. She also hated Pinocchio. Not her. I guess she wasn't not, into fantasy anymore. Not her style. Um, her and a friend that she will meet later on in life went on to say that um, they were too scary. Um, and that uh, she says, I'm more of a Peter Rabbit man myself. I don't know. Alice in Wonderland is too scary. Well, I mean, you got to think. Some, I mean, some of it can be. I mean, the whole thing about the. Uh, the Red Queen is you have to constantly be moving. That's her whole thing is you have to constantly moving because if you stop moving, you'll die. So you have to constantly move and move and move. And that, that you know, that's not who she, she's not a constant move and move and move person. So maybe 
she's I, I she's suppose. she's she's a smart girl and she sees through that type of stuff you see later when she gets into uh um sociology and things yes, that, I, that I, she can I see she sees the underlying story that's going on the inside tone, the story yeah, yeah. Now, in 1938, Ed received news that he would be the new senior zone real estate appraiser for the FHA in Atlanta. Mary was pulled from her school and put into a Peabody Elementary School in Milledgeville for her final couple months of seventh grade. Now, Milledgeville was designated by the city council in 1934 as a bird sanctuary. So the perfect place for Mary to be. She could bird watch and not learn how to spell. <laughs> she would even use her return address on letters as Milledgeville slash a bird sanctuary. And would give invitation to friends, quote, Why don't you take yourself a real vacation in that land of happy retreat, Milledgeville, a bird sanctuary? Now, as lovely as Milledgeville might seem, it was a segregated town with a segregated school and even a segregated cemetery. The cemetery was on a hill. White and well-to-do people born on top of the hill. Uh, super poor white people and pretty much all black people and slaves born at the bottom of the hill going into a creek. Bullshit. Well, that's the Deep South for you. Especially the Deep South in the 1930s. I know. Still bullshit. Now, Regina and Mary stayed in the Ward Beale Klein mansion, one of about 40 antebellum homes in the town, which was owned by Regina's aunt, Mary Klein. They stayed there while Ed got things organized in Atlanta, coming to visit on the weekends. Ed, Ed would never stay too long away from his daughter. He just couldn't do it. Probably, he, could probably, he could probably manage not being with his wife for a while because Regina was who Regina was, but he, could, he couldn't stand going too long without being around his daughter. Oh, that's sweet. Yes. Now, she made one friend at, the, at this age in Milledgeville, a setup between the mothers, Mary Virginia Harrison. The two almost complete opposites. Mary Flannery, shy, gawky, introverted. Mary Virginia, pretty, animated, and hated being alone. They got along very well. Sometimes uh, opposites trek. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Paula Abdul has a whole song about it, all right, with the dancing cat and everything. It's so you can't dispute it. Okay. <laughs> Mary restarted the Merryweather Club for just the two of them. Uh, made the dandelion the official flower, and she made pins that were inspired by a pet parrot. So you know, just little girl shit. They memorized the signs for Burma Shave along the highway. Now, do you know what Burma Shave is? I don't think so. Now. So Burma Shave, obviously, a shaving company, and they, if you ever drive down the highway of the interstate and you see the signs, it'll say, you know, one sign will say something, and the next sign will have the second part to the saying, and then the next sign will have the third part to the saying. Those are Burma Shave style signs. Burma Shave kind of started that. Uh, they put they just put signs up down the road, so you would read them as you go. And most they were either mostly about how women liked the man who shaved, or they were about staying safe while you're driving. So, um, there we got a few of them. Uh, the wolf is shaved, so neat and trim. Red Riding Hood is chasing him. Permachade. <laughs> uh, let's see, what else do we got? I had a few of them up here. Clicked on everything even slower when I'm doing it. If we could put the signs up there, 
wouldn't it be more fun to go by air? Birmingham. And if daisies are your favorite flower, keep pushing up that miles per hour. Birmingham. <laughs> and yes, you have to say Birmingham after everyone. Birmingham. Dark web. <laughs> Uh, there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, I'll post some of them online on uh, the social so you guys can can see them. They're they're fun to read. Now, Mary spent most of her time with herself or with her birds. Again, still, uh, her first cousin, Flances Florencourt, said, "Quote: I remember sitting on the swing on the front porch of Green Street and Flannery walking by with one of those little bantam chickens on a leash, and that was really my first memory of her." Flances. I remember Flance, Francis Florencourt. Oh, you said Francis. I, I meant like, that's I, a. I meant Fran again. Fixing my grammar. I meant Francis. Okay. Francis. Well, Florencourt. no, I was going to say Francis is a interesting it, name. Yeah, it's Francis. Kind of like a. Yeah, she's, she's, what? What's his name from? Uh, oh. Name from. Uh, Plorn. Yeah. The sound Plorn. it made. He made yeah. when he came out. Yeah. <laughs> uh. No, yeah, she's walking her chicken, a little bantam chicken. Now, these chickens are known for being small and aggressive, and she's walking with it on a leash down the, down the fucking street. Oh, man. When I lived in Florida, people had chickens everywhere, and they were just out in the street. Apparently, over in the Miami-Dade area, they are horrible. Like, they have a, they have a section of the um, animal control that is just dedicated to going around and collecting the chickens because they are so... They're fucking everywhere. Well, they, they, I think they have cockfights in Miami. Yeah, I don't know what it was, but it was, it was, remember that show, um, like it was Animal PD or something like that? The, the show, the show that was on uh, Animal Planet where it was the quote unquote animal police or, or whatever it was going, animal control, not animal control, but they were the ones who you would call if, you know, somebody was abusing a dog oh, and yeah. they would, they would come and check it out and then they would call the police. It was that show. But apparently, one down in Miami, um, they just drive around all day trying to catch chickens because apparently they're everywhere. <laughs> apparently, this is like a 1970s movie when you're going to Cuba and you just all of a sudden see chickens everywhere. Apparently, that's Miami. Yeah. I, well, the, there would be dead chickens everywhere because the, the dog, like the chickens would get out and the dogs would kill them or it's coyotes. Like, it's, it's like that old Simpsons episode where... Uh, one animal gets free, so they set another animal out, and then they have to catch it. And then, uh, they, and then all of a sudden, you got bears walking all over the place. Yeah. It's like, well, we got chickens, so we let the dogs out, but now we got to take care of all the dogs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she also had a pet quail named Amelia Earhart after the pilot that went missing in 1937. She startled her teacher and other schoolmates on a field trip when she shouted after the misplaced quail, "Quote, oh, I found Amelia Earhart! I found Amelia Earhart!" And she would take a chicken named Aloysius to Girl Scouts meetings, dressed in little gray shorts with a white shirt, a jacket, and a red bow tie, and let it just walk around. That's funny. I like that name, too, Aloysius. Aloysius. It was her uncle's middle name she got it from. Now, in the summer, they would often go to Sorrel Farms, a 550-acre dairy farm owned by Uncle Dr. Bernard Klein, which was the inspired, which was inspired, which was the inspiration for the boyhood farm of Powell in a circle in the fire. Um, Sa Sorrel Farms is named after the type of horse. Sorrel horse. This farm would later become known as 
Andalusia, which was actually what it was called during its slave days. And it would be a major part of Mary's life in later years. Now, they would fish, uh, run around fields, ride horses, something that Mary was actually pretty good at. And she would use this as sort of a uh, sadistic joke. She was, she could be mean. Uh, she was known to give inexperienced riders the wild horses and laugh at them once they fell off. <laughs> I guess not realizing that you can get extremely hurt by falling off a horse. Look at Christopher Reeves. Yeah. You can, but she would, yeah, she would. Laugh. And she would also somehow get unknowing people to wander into the pig pen, also not understanding how dangerous it was to get into the pig pen. Yeah. Because they, I mean, and these are. Do you are, not are, remember how bad Dorothy's family freaked out whenever she fell into the pig pen? Yeah, these are, these are dairy farm pigs. These are, these are big fucking pigs and you just wander into the pig pen even if they're not going to come try to fucking eat you they will knock you the fuck over and trample you i mean these are 300 pound pigs that are walking around and if they're hungry i mean so she was she had a mean streak to her now eventually ed found them a home just outside atlanta in buckhead you ever heard of buckhead no no you're gonna you're gonna uh, not as a, as luxurious and upscale as the Klein Mansion. There was only one redeeming feature for Mary. The porch overlooked the community park duck pond. So she had that, which made her happy. Now, Buckhead was another of these not-so-black-friendly communities. Rot with KKK activity just a few years before, the robe factory there pumped millions into the economy, and businesses like Coke and Studebaker would advertise there in the Klan newspaper. Yes, the KKK had, and apparently still have, their own newspaper. And Coke advertised with oh, them. Oh, I mean, listen, businesses advertise with whoever they think can bring them money. They don't give a shit. You can look at all the, you can look, um, what, who was it? Um, one of the major clothing corporations i cannot remember for the life of me who it was they were the one who made all of the outfits for the third reich and they are still around and people still use them and i cannot remember who levi it wasn't levi today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for the beardstruggle.com gentlemen have you grown out that beard are you just starting well, if you're like me, you began to notice pretty quickly that the skin underneath all that hair can get pretty dry and flaky. And trust me when I tell you, beard dandruff sucks. And the people over the beard struggle know this and have made it their life's work to develop the best products to make growing and keeping that beard as painless as possible. Over time, the ingredients in their formulas have proven themselves, not just because their customers have had enormous success with them, but because they have worked for centuries. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 90-day money-back guarantee. From the day and night oils, the shampoos and conditioners, all the way to the ingenious beard straightener. They have everything you need to tame that face fur, and I use them. My beard has never looked, felt, or smelled better. Just ask my wife. So go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, 
or click on our link in the show notes and use our new exclusive discount code AUDIO15 at checkout for 15% off. That's A-U-D-I-O-1-5 for 15% off your entire order. Go now and feast your face! Okay, just took a break for a second. It's Hugo Boss. So, yeah. They're a German company. So that makes sense, yeah. I guess. But still, and they've apologized since then. But, yeah. Companies, they don't care. They're companies. They want to make money. So they're going to do what they have to do. God, I don't learn anything by Hugo Boss. No. Now, uh, if you want, but here... And I'm glad I don't drink Coke. <laughs> now here, this this might put a little smug smile on everybody's face. The clan, so two obviously they hate black people, but who else do the clan hate? The Jews and the Catholics. They hate both of those and, and the gays. Yeah, but Jews and Catholics. So the clan's former national headquarters, the Imperial Palace, was foreclosed on by a Jewish banker and sold to the Catholic Church where they built the Christ is King Cathedral where Mary attended Mass. Ha! Fuck you, KKK. <laughs> uh, after that, Mary went to North Fulton High School, again, a segregated school in 1939 and 1940. She hated it. That's all I'm going to say. She hated it. Uh, Mary wasn't a huge fan of Atlanta or the surrounding area. She said about it, quote, my idea about Atlanta is you get in, you get it over with, and you get out before dark. Okay. Uh, there's a good chance that most of her resentment toward the area was experiences she saw while there. Her father's illness was coming and going with symptoms, and there were family troubles. Regina and really the whole of the Klein side of the family weren't the biggest fans of the O'Connors, like I had said at the beginning of the show. And when they moved to Buckhead, they were about a mile and a half from her brother Herbert and his wife, Ed's sister, Nan. So, the couple whose wedding they met at. Regina and Nan rarely saw eye to eye on anything. And when families would get together for holidays or weekend dinners or lunches, Regina would call her in-laws, whom everybody else just called mother and father, Mr. and Mrs. O'Connor. Can you imagine going over to my house and calling my parents Mr. and Mrs. Young? If I was pissed off at that, I might have. Exactly, but that's all she ever called them. No, that's kind of shitty. Yeah. You see, Ed was a sweet and charming man. By all accounts, good-looking, tall, and warm. The exact opposite of his wife. Uh, The whole of the O'Connor clan were warm, loving, and outgoing people. But as far as the Kleins went, Mary said, quote, I come from a family where the only emotion respectable to show is irritation. In some, this tendency produces hives. In others, literature. In me, both. Nice. Now, Atlanta, just starting to recover from the destruction of the Great Depression, Mary saw streets thick with panhandlers, apple sellers, hunger marches, and bread lines. Many stores boarded up. More than likely, the inspiration for the city, Tolkenham, in wise blood, and features that features street peddlers, vacant lots, and railroad yards. A character named Enoch, for those of you who have read Wise Blood, I'm actually listening to it at the moment. Uh, it's not very long, but it's a little out there. Uh, Enoch works at the City Forest Park Zoo, which is based on the Atlanta's based on Atlanta's Grant Park Zoo. In the artificial N-word. The N-word comes up a lot. 
I refuse to say it. You're just gonna. I, I know technically it's the name of a of a book, and um, there are words that she uses in the book. So technically, it's oh well, you're just reading it. It's okay. It, I'm I'm not gonna say the word, so you're just gonna deal with it. Uh, anyway, in the artificial N, uh, Atlanta is compared to Dante's Hell, so not complimentary. Mm. Now, the biggest event to happen to Mary while Mary was in Atlanta was on December 15th, 1939, when five giant searchlights clashed over the Lowe's Grand Theater and Confederate flags were hung down Peachtree Street as the premiere of Gone with the Wind came to town. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for your contribution. Uh, Confederate festivals lasted for over a week. Uh, Hetty McDowell, the black actress who won Best Supporting Actress in the, uh, from the movie, first black actress to ever win an Oscar, not invited. However, the Ebenezer Baptist Church Choir did entertain a whites-only junior league ball associated with the opening event. The director of the choir, Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., and one of the members of said choir, 10-year-old, Martin Luther King Jr. dressed like a slave. It's fucked up. (laughs) It's what it is. Uh, Mary was quoted as saying, I sure am sick of the Civil War. Because it's, because growing up then, it's growing up down there then, that's all that's thrust into your fucking face is just Civil War, Civil War, Civil War. And it's still not fucking over. I know. Uh, she had no interest in the book or the movie. She would even take shots at the evening and at the book itself in her stories, A Late Encounter with the Enemy and The Enduring Chill, where she says that if you want to make a book, if you want to make a long book, put the war in it like Gone with the Wind. I mean, she's got a point. Yeah. Now, in 1940, due to Mary being so unhappy at her current school, her parents pulled her out and put her back into Peabody High in Milledgeville. So Mary and Regina moved back to the Klein Mansion, and Ed moved into the Bell House, the home of Uncle Dr. Bernard. Regina decided that Mary needed an activity to keep her busy. With the amount of time and dedication Mary always gave to her writing and drawings, she thought that the best thing to do would be get in contact with George Haslam, or Haslam, the advisor to the high school newspaper, the Peabody Palladium. George agreed and asked the extremely introverted girl to contribute. She said she didn't know how to write, but that she could draw, so Mary was made the art editor in October, a job that, by all accounts, she was destined for. Good for her. Now, for her first issue, she cut some linoleum, painted some oil-based ink into the ridges, and printed a reversed paper copy on a special press to create a piece titled One Result of the New Peabody Orchestra, which featured a cartoon girl wearing a tasseled hat, sweater, pleated skirt, blowing on a large saxophone with the word BLAH, coming all caps, coming from it. And in the background featured a frowning woman cupping her hand to her ears. The cartoon went along with the article, Students Join Concert Group. Over the next five years, she would produce 120 of these prints, things like a girl at her desk with a thought bubble of a turkey for Thanksgiving, and a sleeping student with Z's floating from her mouth. 
They were called by one critic, single-frame satires. And even though she claimed not to know how to write, her debut poem, The First Book, was published in the same 1940 November issue as the Thanksgiving cartoon. The spring of 1941, she would write and illustrate three books on her own about geese, Elmo, Gertrude, and Mistaken Identity. But before that could happen, Ed's health had faded so much that he had to give up the FHA job. He had to move from the bell house and back into the Klein mansion to be cared for by his wife and her family. Now, an invalid in his mid-40s, 15-year-old Mary had to watch her beloved father, once so full of life and charm, waste away from a painful and still very mysterious illness. Yeah, you're thinking about having to do that with your dad? How sad it would make you? It's the same. Then one month after his 45th birthday in February 1941, Lupus took the life of Edward O'Connor. Mary had to console her mother, reminding her that he was now better off than they were, but Mary rarely ever spoke about her father after that. The death led to a routine of keeping silent about the things that mattered to her. Her fiction will often feature a widow or an orphan, uh, insinuating the death of a husband or a father. Lupus is a systematic autoimmune disease that occurs when your body's immune system attacks your own tissue and organs. Uh, Inflammation caused by lupus can affect many different body systems, including your joints, skin, kidneys, blood cells, brain, heart, and lungs. It's a bitch of a disease. There's still no cure, but there are treatments. Um, But back then, there was really nothing you could do other than try not to die. And it's difficult to try not to die. It is. is. Now that we got some of the sad part over the way, out of the way, let's get back to the books. Uh, She wrote and bound these books, pink cardboard with a spiral binding, on her own. Apparently, everyone that read them thought they were quite good, and they even encouraged her to get them copyrighted. The most attention was paid to Mistaken Identity, a 17-page poem with colored illustrations about gender confusion among geese. Now, this was based on her pet gander, Herman, that ended up laying and hatching eight eggs. Quote, Herman's Henrietta. Uh, That December, the Palladium wrote up a story on her unsuccessful attempts to publish the books in an article called Peabodyite Reveals Strange Hobby. When the interviewer asked what her hobby was, she replied, quote, collecting rejection slips. When she eventually self-published Mistaken Identity, she added the preface, The following is a drama especially prepared for highly intelligent adults and precocious children. (laughs) Now, something you need to know about Peabody School is it was incredibly progressive for the time. It wasn't the, you have to sit down and read this and learn everything the exact same way everybody else has learned, learned things forever. It was more of a, it was a teacher's teaching, it was a teaching teaching school where people would go to learn how to teach. And so it was new teachers coming in who weren't technically really even teachers yet. So you're being taught by a lot of people who are trying to figure out for themselves how they want to teach class. And a lot of them were, okay, what do you guys want to learn? How do you want to do this? You know, in chemistry, I mean, you learn the periodic table, but it was also a bunch of other stuff that's like, okay, what do you guys want to know how to do? 
So things weren't traditional. And Mary hated it. But she also hated the nuns. So she went from being, go, going to one school that she hated because of the fucking nuns and, and how they were to going to another school that she hated, which was the total opposite, where she had to deal with the horrible free thinkers. So she went from... But this school was much better for Mary. She actually uh, benefited a lot from being at the school. She was so odd that she actually fit in more than she stood out. Because there's a lot of people there that were a little kind of off. But there's uh, in the book, sorry about how she would walk. She'd always like put her hands behind her back and like point, point herself forward while she walked. And when someone would say hi, she would hide with a salute. So she's kind of weird, and she's got a little bit of a limp because she's got corrective shoes on. But she kind of fit in more than she stood out, and people liked her a little bit more, I think. And again, because it was a more of a progressive school, she she kind of benefited from her from it because of her off-center personality. Yeah. Like, for art class, she brought Herman as her portrait model into class for geese that is now Henrietta. Her goose. Her, yeah, her goose. And in home ec, while everyone spent weeks sewing aprons and underwear, she sat on the side and did nothing. And when the teacher exclaimed, quote, next Wednesday is an ex- examination day for this course, all members who expect to receive a grade are to bring and display the various garments made during the quarter. I hardly see how you are going to get a whole outfit finished and ready, Mary Flannery, by that time. But on the day, in walked Mary with a pet duckling, with an entire outfit of underwear and clothes, beautiful clothes, beautifully sewn to fit the animal, and Mary passed. Good girl. Now, Mary liked to get the names for her birds from the newspaper that she had to read for history class and always wanted to revel in shock value. Remember that this is just at the beginning of World War II. She named her Black Crow Winston for Winston. Churchill. Yes. Yes. Her pet rooster, Haile Selassie, who was the emperor of Ethiopia at the time. And, of course, her other rooster that shared a pen with Haile. And I guess? Hitler. Close. Adolf. Changing the name only after the neighbors were said to be disturbed by calls of, Here, Adolf, coming from the Klein's backyard. At least that wasn't Hail. Hail. My my brother back years ago, um, they had, her, his in-laws had a cat that they named Little Shit. And their last name started with a D. So... They didn't like going outside screaming little shit when the cat would run away. So they started going by his initials. So when they go outside, they start screaming LSD. Nice. (laughs) Now, at age 17, Mary attended the Georgia State College for Women in Milledgeville, or the GSCW, that is lovingly called by many. It was a place that would be brought up several times, satired, not even brought up, satired several times in Mary's writings, ran by its longtime president, Dr. Guy H. Wells, a gruff cigar-smoking gentleman with garbled grammar, 
and a liberal that spoke of calling attention to the prejudices against blacks, but he was not so progressive when it came to women. Just so you know. Uh, this is where she would meet a lifelong friend, Betty Boyd Love, the summer of 1942. It was Mary's first friend that wasn't chosen by her mother. They bonded over their mutual literary ambition. Betty had two poems published that fall in the college literary magazine, The Corinthian, called Fairies and Reflections. While Mary wrote a piece published two years later called Poof. I'm sorry, it's three Fs. Poof. Both would grow horrified at the sheer mention of these, quote, pretty terrible poems. Now, Mary had a few teachers she connected on some level with, bad or good, like Dr. Paul Boyson, her survey of humanities teacher from the classical language department, whom she would talk with every day before class, and Catherine Scott, her general college composition teacher, who was said to be the steel magnolia version of Sister Mary Consolata. Though the two would remain civil, sometimes getting into discussions in the middle of class, seemingly forgetting everyone else in the room, fellow student Fran Richardson once told her, quote, I wish I could borrow some of your creativity. And Mary responded with, I'd exchange it for your ability to track a man. <laughs> Which was odd, because Mary would spend her time actively avoiding dating and uncomfortable discussing the topic openly in public. Like, the whole thought of sex and kissing and being with somebody just kind of didn't gross her out, but made her feel really uncomfortable. It's her Catholic, it's the way she's brought us her Catholic roots. A Catholic, you know, a good Catholic girl is not supposed to talk about sex and shit like that. That's how I felt when I was younger, too. It's I the bad Catholic that. girls that talk about shit, about sex and shit. Yeah, I all the Catholic kids I went to school with were... I went to school with quite a few whores. I did too. Yeah, and men and the, you know, boys and girls. Most of them were the Catholics. Catholics and Lutheran school here in town. Yep. Oh well. Now, what an interviewer asked uh, Scott, her teacher Scott, Catherine Scott, decades later about Mary, she said, "Quote: Even then, it was obvious she was a genius, warped, but a genius all the same." Now, the first official gathering of the freshman class was in September of 1942. A formal tea at President Wells' house, just around the block from the Klein Mansion, which Mary had no intent on going to. But she finally broke to family pressure, put on the mandatory long dress, but with tennis shoes, and walked to the event. When asked why she was sitting all alone in the corner, she said, Well, I'm antisocial. <laughs> then... There was Rat Day, freshman initiation. Uh, a day of mass hazing started at 4.30 in the morning, and by the evening, anyone who had not shown enough servility were put on trial before a screaming jury of juniors in a rat court in Peabody Auditorium. Sentences doled out were things like washing your mouth out with soap, and one girl was, was seen sitting on a Coke bottle and washing clothes, no say on if the bottle was sideways or upright. Those are two very different afternoons. Yes. <laughs> and if it was upright, which which hole? Yeah. And she had pants on? I'm guessing she had pants on. I don't know. It doesn't say. It just says that she was sitting on a Coke bottle. So let your, imagination, let your imagination go wild. Ugh. Now, when a, group, when a group of sophomores told Mary to wear an onion around her neck, she refused. 
When commanded to kneel and beg forgiveness, she said, quote, I will not, and walked away. So she's just, you know, you don't technically make me do anything, and so fuck you. <laughs> and just walked off, which good advice for any of you that are being hazed and just don't want to deal with it. Just say no and go away. And just fucking walk away. Well, no, because then they won't get into the sorority or fraternity. Who fucking cares? Some people do. Yeah. Now, also in 1942, she published a satire in the Corinthian called Going to the Dogs. Uh, I'm not going to get into the story too much, but she signed it M.F. O'Connor. Now, this is significant because it's the one it's one of the first times she started to change how she is addressed. And also her father used to sign things E.F. O'Connor. So she's kind of, I guess, it's kind of an homage to her father. Yeah, she's starting to miss him. More yeah, more. I think. Well, I think that. She never really stopped. Now, by the middle of that semester, she would be back to her designated role, campus cartoonist. The faculty advisor to the Colonnade, the school paper, was, again, George Haslam. So he just pulled her from one, put her into another. Beginning in November, she would raise her rate of production to a cartoon a week and take over as art editor for the newspaper office in the basement of Parks Hall. It would be here where she would, again, change her signature to a monogram, Made to look like a bird, the M was the beak, the F was the tail, the O was the face, and the C was the body. I'll post pictures on our socials of her cartoons with the monogram. It, it's actually pretty neat. Uh, Betty Boyd said, quote, It may look like a bird, but I'm sure she would have said it was a chicken. <laughs> her first cartoon, titled The Immediate Results of Physical Fitness Day, featured an exhausted girl in a baggy sweater and a skirt supporting herself with a cane and her tongue hanging out. It went with the article, Keeping Fit, Physical Fitness Program to be Daily Feature at GSCW. Now, by the, t- by the end of her first school year there, there was so much buzz behind her cartoons that the Macon Telegraph and News ran a story on her and her method of drawing. And she was already starting to make a buzz. In January 1943, the Waves came to GSCW. Now, the Waves were the Women Accepted for Voluntary Emergency Services. Waves. About 86,000 female soldiers brought into the Navy service in the States. A portion of them, a large portion actually, came to the campus of GSCW for drills and moved into dorms and classrooms. Mary was sure to bring them into her cartoons. Two girls see some waves walking their way, and one one in a plaid skirt says, quote, Officer or no officer, I'm going to ask her to let me try on that hat. She's got balls. Well, that was a cart. Yeah, yeah, but she doesn't care. I know. Now, it wasn't only... F- do we have left? Because I thought you said this. It was. Well, we keep talking, and we keep stopping to do shit, so just settle down. It wasn't only female soldiers. Male soldiers were showing up in Milledgeville as well. They would pour into the town on weekends on leave with leave passes from the surrounding military bases because that's where the women soldiers were at. It wasn't uncommon for families to take the soldiers in for the weekend or invite them to dinner. The residents of the Klein Mansion were no exception. Many of the Roman Catholic servicemen went to the church on Sundays and they would be invited home for a meal. And this is how Mary met John Sullivan. They quickly had a connection, being able to trade stories about their odd Catholic families. Sullivan became a fixture at the house. Now, just like all of Mary's friends and others she connected with, they were complete opposites. 
Mary's shy and awkward. Sullivan, outgoing, confident, and good-looking. He appreciated her wit and what was said to be her wry inside tips about southern moors. And they went on little, let's say, dates. Uh, Long walks, movies, uh, once to a dance where he discovered that she was a truly horrible dancer. Her uh, her claiming that she had a tin leg. Uh, Probably the inspiration for a future cartoon portraying a wallflower of a girl in a long striped skirt and glasses sitting alone watching other couples dance. And the caption reads, oh, well, I can always be a Ph.D. (laughs) Now, it may have seemed like the two were flirting with a chance of a relationship to the excitement of her mother. Uh, But when interviewed 40 years later, Sullivan claimed that they had a, quote, close camaraderie, but not a romance. Kind of a kick to the balls. Now, once he was transferred to training camp, she continued to send letters showing signs of a small crush, casually telling her father, her family out of nowhere, just like out of the blue for no apparent reason, just uh, that she had heard from John. Just like she like walks into a room and goes, John sent me a letter. Or, um, I heard from John. Like nobody, like nobody asked. She's just bringing it up so she could tell people about it. Uh, the exchanges of letters lasted until he entered, and this has to hurt the ego a little bit, St. Gregory's Seminary after the war to study for the priesthood. Ouch. Yeah. Like, you and me should get together. I'm going to go somewhere where I can't have sex. So no. Uh, so what was next now for 18-year-old Mary? Well, she had decided to get away from Milledgeville to study journalism or work as a newspaper cartoonist. The only people offering encouragement being John and a few teachers. Her family was not very encouraging. In the spring quarter of 1943, Mary took an elective English 234 course taught by Mrs. Haley Smith, or Miss Haley Smith, a GSCW professor who also belonged to the Audubon Society. Now, the National Audubon Society is an American nonprofit environmental organization dedicated to the conservation of birds and their habitats. So, right down her alley. Nice. Uh, the class contained only a dozen young women, and they all soon understood that Mary was actually the only real writer among them. On May 24th, Mary handed in her first assignment, two descriptions of a street scene, one photographic, uh, the second poetic, naming the street Raphael Street after her cousin Katie's husband. Miss Smith loved the work and gave her an A+. Five days later, Mary handed in her character study signed with the pseudonym Jane Shorebanks, for some reason, detailing a vapid young lady walking along chewing gum to the beat of the Missouri Waltz. I don't know. Very descriptive. Yes. Uh, Miss Smith again gave her an A and added, Won't you submit something to the Corinthian? Mary had previously published a mock review of Ferdinand the Bull saying, quote, highly recommendable literature for a college student uh, and a satire on replacing cars with horses. Now, over the next 10 weeks, Mary wrote a series of short descriptive exercises like calling lemon gelatin translucent mush and saying celery tasted like sucking warm water out of a dish rag. She's very descriptive. She's very good with her descriptions. And she wrote small stories about uh, a black laundry worker talking to a white woman, a third grade teacher on a bad day, and Mrs. Watson reading movie magazines under a hairdryer. 
Uh, one character study of a Mrs. Peterson being ushered to her seat at the theater entitled The Sinister with the pseudonym Gertrude Beechlock, which received yet another A. But one complete story she wrote took everyone by surprise because they had no idea that this unassuming girl could be so dark, called A Place of Action. The story takes place on a Saturday night in a black neighborhood with a zoot-suited character that is stabbed by a woman he is hassling. Mrs. Smith writing good next to the description of the knife, a thick red coating hiding its glimmer. And she asked if she would like to submit it to the Corinthian. Mary did, and she began to publish more stories and satires, like Elegance is Its Own Reward, which was in the style of humorous Poe. Hmm. Uh, everybody had Poe in their house back then, and she loved Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, of course. Yeah. It was about a husband that kills both of his wives, one, one with a hunting knife and the other by strangulation. Uh, much of what she was writing at the time could be seen as ideas conceived by reading Faulkner or Joyce, even though, for some reason, she said at that time she had no idea who they were. I doubt it. It's a lie because there's a she has a journal and it's got a bunch of uh, different authors in it with check marks next to them who she did and didn't read and Faulkner and Joyce and a few others were in there already. So she had already read Faulkner and Joyce. But for some reason she said that at she ha hadn't even heard of them at the time. She didn't hear about them until she went until she uh, moved away. So whatever. Now, in the spring of 1945, Mary started her final quarter at GSCW. Now 20 years old and on the verge of graduating, Mary was considered the big woman on campus. Editor-in-chief of the Corinthian, feature editor on the Spectrum yearbook, art editor at the Colonnade, getting elected to honor societies like the Phoenix, Who's Who in American Colleges and Universities, and the International Relations Club. She started sending copies of her cartoons to James Thurber, cartoonist for The New Yorker, with hopes of getting a job, but instead got, quote, a lot of encouraging rejection slips. Now, you have to understand that while Mary had great captions to her drawings, and the feel of them was unmistakable, you, you knew exactly what she was talking about, the drawings themselves, not that great. Like, if the New Yorker was looking for Pixar, she was giving them Schoolhouse Rock. I almost put in 10-ounce mouse here. But they're not that bad. Uh, but honestly, if you look at them, they're like really, really rough Popeye sketches. Like a lot of her women look like fatter olive oils almost. Uh, I, again, I will post some of these pictures on Instagram and Twitter so you can all see what I'm talking about. They're not bad, but they're not New Yorker good. You know, like, like they're not. They're, they're Georgia good. They're going to be. They'll be seen as much better than what they are once she becomes famous. Yes. Once you, once you become famous, and it's like anything anybody does is fucking fantastic. But for just, a, 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 for the most part, a no-name in Georgia, they weren't great. She never really gets the job at the New Yorker. Now, probably the most important class Mary took at GSCW was one of her last. Social Science 412. Introduction to Modern Philosophy taught by Dr. George Boswanger. His assigned book, The Making of the Modern Mind by John Herman Randall Jr., whose viewpoints of secular humanists grounded in pragmatism and took for granted the, that the Renaissance and the Age of Enlightenment set the Western mind free from the benignness of medieval thought, and the hero of the course was 17th century French philosopher Descartes, 
for relying on his discourse on method on mathematics and science to unlock the secrets of a purely material world. Not not long after this class started, the doctor became aware of what this book calls a persistent, subtle scowl. Quote, Flannery sat in class, listening intently, took notes, and without saying a word, it became clear that she didn't believe a word of what I was saying. You could just tell that she's like, you're so full of shit. Yeah, it's kind of like fake psychology. Uh, I don't know about that. It's kind of what it what he was teaching. Well, no, he's not teaching fake psycho. It's philosophy. He's teaching philosophy, not psychology, and she doesn't agree with. And everyone says, "Don't major in philosophy because you'll never get a fucking job." Well, she's not majoring in it. It's just one of her classes that she. I know, but it's a very important class for her, and it's not so much. Let's get into it now. Even though Mary came off as confident, what the doctor was saying made her really stop and think about what she believed. Quote, what kept me a skeptic in college was precisely my Christian faith. It always said, wait, don't bite on this. Get a wider picture. Continue to read. By this time, Mary was finally a little more out of her shell, at least enough to give the doctor a hard time about the subjects. They got into more than a few heated exchanges. Mary going as far as going to the blackboard to diagram in detail what she saw was the contrast between Aquinas and modern Thomas Aquinas, the Italian philosopher and theologian from the 13th century, who was a big part of these classes. Quote, she knew Aquinas in detail, was amazingly well-read in early philosophy, and developed into a first-rate intellectual along with her other accomplishments. It soon became clear to me that she was a born writer and that she was going that way. Now, the doctor told Mary that she should apply for graduate school at his alma mater, the University of Iowa. So she did. And thanks to some help from Besswanger uh, lobbying for her, she was offered a journalism scholarship from Iowa, providing full tuition and $65 a term as she quickly accepted. Now her family wasn't, again, all that encouraging. Um, Most of them thought that she would be back home within three weeks, to which she responded in her journal with their simple, she wrote it out. But on June 11th, 1945, Mary graduated from GSCW with Iowa ahead of her. And that's where we'll pick it up for part two of Flannery O'Connor. Awesome. She's going to have a, She's going from Georgia to Iowa. It's kind of a big change for her, especially the weather. Well, yeah, the weather is going to be a big change, but also the fact that it's a northern area and slavery is not going to be that big of a deal. So, because it's the, above the, the really the money. biggest issue as far as her going to Iowa is, I my my southern accent got shut down here. Because I wanted to do it throughout the show, but I saw the looks I was getting, so I stopped. My ears were bleeding. But even my the, the way I was doing mine doesn't quite give her justice. I will find a clip of her speaking and post it. That way you can all hear. It's it's thick. <laughs> it's super thick. And it's, T-H-I-C-C. Yeah, yeah. And, and hard to understand. Um, when we get into the second episode, it, it, it starts right off with her 
next professor not understanding a word she's saying and he, she has to write it down for him. It, a lot of people have a really hard time understanding her to the point where when she gets into writing class, other people have to read her stuff for her because nobody can understand what the fuck she's saying. It's thick. So that is going to be like the biggest shock of just trying to communicate with people. I could see that happening. I feel like somebody from, I think, I feel like it'd be like somebody from, like a Welsh person coming here to the Midwest and us trying to have a conversation with them because they have a completely different, I mean, I mean it's English still, but it's. Or it's, it's kind of like somebody trying to understand Boomhauer. Yeah, it's complete. Maybe. It's completely different. It's a it's a different type of English than we talk. Because they, they could say a million things in a sentence that we're not going to have an idea of what the fuck they're saying. And same way around. They, they'll probably have a harder un- time understanding us. But it's the same language. But it's just different. That's kind of that, that's kind of how it ends up. So, fun time. Yeah. Okay. Fun times. You'll give our socials out? Uh, yes. Uh, let's see if I can remember them. Oh, it's only been a couple of weeks. I know. Uh, we are at open a F-I-N-G book on Twitter and Instagram. There you go. I am at E-C-J-B-A-T on Twitter and Gram. Um, young E-T-A-M on Twitter. Young E-T-A- Young E-T-A-M 6 on Twitter. Young E-T-A-M on Instagram. You can get our email open a effing book at gmail.com um if you have anything to say i'm sure some people who live down in the south might want to send us an email and put stephanie on blast for some of the things she was saying and she'll she'll politely say uh fuck you i will politely say go fuck yourself <laughs> uh stephanie our goodreads uh goodreads.com slash open book and i didn't say stephanie our unupdated goodreads did i no. No, I didn't because what did I what did I spend a couple hours doing the other day? I guess updating our Goodreads. Updating our Goodreads. So all the books that we've covered on this show, well, the vast majority of the books that we've covered on the show, all the books that I've done research on for the show, they're all up there now. Um, I will add this one after the show comes out because I'm big on secrets because I'm an idiot. Um, go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash openafingbook. Uh, we'll put plenty of stickers up there still for the for Spotify. And uh, all your donations go to make this show better than, you know, this. Uh, come back for our weekday show, our weekday cliff notes, where we'll have four books of the week. And we'll talk about some some book news and uh, just chat for a minute. And books I want. And and books she wants and we'll probably end up getting at some point. Yep. Because uh, I get what I want. Rate and review us wherever you listen. All the podcast apps, just go on there. Rate, review us, follow us, subscribe, whatever they let you do. Go to your local library, your local bookstore. Uh, volunteer to library if they let you uh, buy a, a book from an independent author from an independent local bookstore if you can it's the best thing to do to help them out right now stephanie i think that's it i think it is too all right and awesome. i think one thing i'd like to add is uh i'm trying to do this book challenge for the year mm-hmm. and i think everybody should look up any type of book challenge they want and try to push themselves to complete a book challenge for the year yeah, I mean, even if you can't get it completed, if just try to participate, try to keep up, do as best as you can, just you know, for yourself. You don't, nobody else gets anything out of it, just you. So, you know, and try on, something for yourself. On my private Goodreads account, because I didn't want to set it up on ours, because uh, you're going to be constantly putting the books that you read for. Well, there's a Stephanie reads portion on there. No, I know, but I can't set up. Um, 
the on the Goodreads on Goodreads there's this thing that you can set up how many books you want to read for the year a Goodreads goal mm-hmm. and I want to read 125. Jesus fucking Christ. That's very easy to do. Okay. But I couldn't set that up on our account because you will be constantly updating with the books that you read for the show. Yeah, most of them go into the weekday cliff notes um, shelf for books that we've covered. And then we do the open a effing book, um, open a fucking bookshelf but for ones that are reviewed. You, write, you read on yeah. any shelf, it'll I automatically. So I, um, I put it on my own, which is if you want to add yourself on that one too, it's goodreads.com backslash ECJBAT. But uh, that's where I set that up. Okay. We can put a link in the show notes. So if you want to follow Stephanie's Goodreads and see what she's reading on there and um, see how her reading challenge is going, you can follow her along and her her journey to reading 125 books this year. Sounds like a lot. Sounds like a lot to me. I don't, don't real honestly the only books I read are the ones that are listened to are the ones that are Well, I I set that goal because last year I didn't read nearly as many as I wanted to. Yeah. And I felt like I've been slacking with the reading because I've bought so many new books and I haven't read any. Yeah. So I know. I have a stack. You're talking to the mic. I have a stack of about 20 over there. Um some of which are no like 16 14. Well, no, no, because there's some paperbacks on the other side and they're smaller. Oh, okay. Um, so about 16 to 20 books over there. Yeah, all those books, and she just got one in yesterday. Well, like, oh, yeah, new, because ooh, on, new book. on one of the challenges, you have to read a book that uh, the author either has have your name or your initials. So. I don't have any books with any authors with my initials, so I had, I found. A, I mean, you could have gone with SM. I still don't have any books with authors with SM, but I found an author with my name. You looked through these five hundred books. Was Stephanie Meyer? Oh yeah. <laughs> I got but I've already right read those. Fucking head. Okay, fair enough. All right, this okay. The whole port point of me breaking this down to be three episodes instead of just two episodes was to cut okay, it short okay, okay, and we're so going we're on. All right. All right, guys. Uh, take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. And between now and the time we can talk to you again, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. All right. We'll see you. Bye, guys. Bye.